So, brothers and sisters, people of God, this is the word of the true and living God. Please give it your careful and your reverent attention. Acts 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of God. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for this passage of scripture for us to uh, to dive into, to as it were, to feast upon as a great meal for the soul. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would help me to rightly divide this passage. You would help me, O oh Lord, to make it in such a way that, present it in such a way, O oh Lord, that your people might not only digest it, but find it greatly enjoyable. Thank you for your word. We delight in your truth. Please give us your light. Shine your light upon us and bless the preaching of the word. Bless your people in the hearing of the word and help us all to fulfill the word by obeying it. We pray that we do this to honor your name. And it's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Friday evening of November 21st, 2010 is an evening that I will always remember. As long as I have my memory intact, I will remember this date because this is the date of my ordination and installation of my first call. And it truly was one of the most joyful days of my ministry. I remember having my family, many friends had come to this church, and my two pastors who had mentored me for, for many years were there to preach in that service. It was a very joyful occasion. It was the first time that I ever had the privilege of giving the benediction to the church. That's the tradition in our churches, that at the end of the service you have all these ministers who preach and instruct the, the minister, instruct the congregation. Um, the pastors and elders in the, in, the, in the building lay hands on the man, praying for the man, praying for God's blessing on the man, and then he is installed officially in that church, and at the very end of that service, uh, the pastor stands and gives the benediction for the first time. It's very memorable, very, very enjoyable so I remember these great memories. I do remember also this one interesting statement. One of the ministers there kind of somewhat strangely, uh, borderline inappropriately, said to me as he shook my hand and said, prepare now to die. <laughs> A little bit dramatic. Um, he, wasn't, he wasn't wrong. Um, I knew what he meant. But brothers and sisters, there's, there's truth in this. The call to gospel ministry is a, is a call 
in very similar fashion to the Christian life. It's a call to self-denial. It's a call to dying to self. It's a, it's a call to following our Lord Jesus, to take up one's cross, the cross that Jesus gives you, and to carry it and to follow him wherever he leads you. Uh, that is true for every Christian, but in a heightened sense, it is true for those who are called to ministry. It is a call to self-denial. It is a call to deny oneself his pleasures, his concerns, and to serve the master wholeheartedly. And in this passage, we see this same call, this same ordination upon these two men, Saul and Barnabas. And we see that it is indeed a call to self-denial, to deny themselves to serve the Lord Jesus Christ wholeheartedly and to prepare to suffer for the church. Remember the context here that that chapter 12, chapter 11, and 12 are picturing for us the persecution of the church at this time, uh, the opposition against the church. But in the midst of that opposition, the church is not diminishing. Far from it, the church is actually growing. The church is thriving and flourishing in the midst of opposition, which is the way it always works. You would think that Satan would get the memo on this, but he doesn't. He continues to, t- to try the same attacks, same tactics, and it keeps backfiring in his face. But that's good that he doesn't learn that. But the church continues to grow. But we do see some sad things. We see the first martyr of the first apostle, James, uh, dies at the hand of Herod. Um, This leaves 11 apostles currently recognized by the church at this time. But there's one man waiting in the wings. You know who that is, kids. Who's that one man? That one man that's waiting in the wings since chapter 9 who God had called to be a minister to the Gentiles and who promised him that he would indeed understand what it meant to suffer. For his name, Saul, Paul. He's waiting in the wings. Now remember, he's been called already by God, but he's not yet been officially ordained. This is his ordination service. This is his installation as an apostle. And uh, certainly, it would, uh, it would bear good fruit in the church, as we know. So this passage shows us the calling of Paul as an apostle. And... Um, we see that he, is, uh, he regards himself as a man untimely born. We see that in 1 Corinthians. Uh, by that he meant that he was the last apostle and he was the one apostle who didn't, who didn't uh, participate in the earthly ministry of Jesus. He did see Jesus, which is a prerequisite of being an apostle, but he didn't participate in the earthly ministry of Jesus. So he's like a, he was like a, a child born out of time, uh, strangely late. But he would be called to be the apostle to the Gentiles primarily. The age of apostleship would soon end within a generation. But Paul would spend the rest of his days from this time forward to fill out that roster of 12. There were always 12 apostles. And he would spend the rest of his days filling that role. This passage is notable not only for the calling of Paul as an apostle but the work of the Holy Spirit. This is really the highlight of this passage that we're looking at. The work of the Holy Spirit, the activity of the Holy Spirit. We know that the, the book of Acts is the record of the acts of Jesus in his church, working through his church, but the agency of Christ is worked through the Holy Spirit. Christ pours out his Spirit upon the church, and the Spirit is the agent of activity in the church. And we see that very, very clearly in this passage. Three times we see actions taken by the Holy Spirit. Just look with me. We see him calling men, verse 2. We see him sending men, uh, directing them to their place of labor, verse 4. And then in verse 9, we see the Holy Spirit empowering these men to engage Satan himself in the, in the person of this uh, false prophet. So the passage here that we're going to look at is verses 1 through 5. And in this passage, we're going to see this, that Christ, by the agency of his Holy Spirit, and by the agency of the church itself, ordains men to serve his church. By the agency of the Spirit and the church, Christ ordains men to serve the body and to help them follow the straight paths of the Lord. Straight paths of the Lord. We see that um, later on in this passage mentioned. And that was the call of the church to, to guide them in straight ways and straight teaching. 
So we're going to see this ordination of these ministers. We're going to see it in three things. We're going to see, one, the Holy Spirit chooses men that he has gifted. Number two, we're going to see the Holy Spirit sets apart those men through the church. And thirdly, we're going to see the Holy Spirit send those, sends those men where he wants them to serve. And then, God willing, we're going to see how this is relevant for us um, today in the New Testament church. So first of all, look with me at verse 1. The Holy Spirit chooses men that he has gifted. Uh, verse 1, it says there, was, uh, there, was the, there were those in the church at Antioch. Now, just pause for a moment and remember now, Jerusalem, which had been the sort of ground zero for the activity of God in the early church, has now been surpassed by Antioch. Um, the daughter church, as it were, has now surpassed the mother in her usefulness and her fruitfulness and her strength. So Jerusalem is no longer ground zero for God's work. And at that time, there's this interesting group of ministers serving here. There are five men mentioned. Listen to their names. Barnabas, we know him. Simeon, who's called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene. Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. And last but not least, Saul. Now, we'll, we'll, we'll tackle the bracket men, Saul and Barnabas, in a moment. But look at these three in the middle. It's interesting. We have a group of Jews and Greeks together. Niger from North Africa, almost certainly. Niger basically is a Latinized word to black. He's a black gentleman. Uh, so, uh, so it's very, very likely, almost certainly, from North Africa. Um, Lucius from Cyrene. Uh, this is modern-day Libya. Uh, this is a Roman name. So he's certainly a Gentile. Menaean, who was a Jew. Now, this is very interesting. Menaean was... The word that's used in the Greek is uh, the, the phrase lifelong friend is, is a one word in the Greek, and it's a word that means one who eats with um, or one who nurses with. That word is used to describe men who are raised in the courts of a king or, or, of, a, or of, a, of, a, of an aristocrat. The idea was that Menaean was a man who grew up in the court with Herod the Tetrarch, the son of Herod the Great. So this is a man who has a very high social status in, in, in Israel. Uh, he was raised in the courts of this man who you know from the Gospels, Herod the Tetrarch, was not a godly man, quite the opposite, a wicked man. But he's become a Christian now. It's fascinating, really. Just think about this, this man who goes from that to, to now following Christ. All of these men basically are just very different men, but they had one thing in common, and I want you to know what they had in common they had a common gift set. And the common gift set dictated their function in the church. Notice there were two gift sets mentioned. They were prophets and they were teachers. These five men all possessed these two particular gifts of the Holy Spirit. Teaching, which is the ability to instruct in an edifying and interesting manner. And prophecy, which is a little bit more difficult to uh, a little bit more difficult to define. Someone asked me the other day, how do you define the gift of prophecy? And it's, it's quite a challenge, but I'm going to give it a shot. Uh, prophecy is the ability by God's Holy Spirit to proclaim God's word in a heightened, persuasive, and powerful manner that affects the heart. So it's a heightened form of teaching uh, that affects the emotions, the will, that persuades, is powerful. And again, this is a gift that the Holy Spirit gives. So these men, and by the way, Witherington uh, summarizes this by saying, teachers inform and prophets inspire. I think that's helpful. Um, so these, these men, these five men, all have this common uh, gift set which dictates what they are. They're ministers. Historically, we've recognized that ministers of the gospel are men who, who have these two gifts as a prerequisite. They're able to teach, but not just teach. They're able to take that word and pre present it in a heightened manner. This is, again, a gift that the Spirit gives. Um, and this leads to just a thought here that, that, that we should broaden to, to, to all of us, an application that we should broaden to all of us. And it is this, that God, if you are a Christian, God has given you a spiritual gift, at least a spiritual gift, if not more. Every Christian has a spiritual gift, at least one, and Christ calls us to use them. This is one of the things I want us to bring out of this text. Teaching and preaching are not the only gifts. There are other spiritual gifts. You can see these in two main places in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 12, which I won't read for time's sake. In 1 Corinthians 12, we see a, gift set, a set of gifts that are, I believe, primarily describing gifts that were, that were 
for, for the early church period, the apostolic period. But Romans chapter 12 gives a gift set that are normative, I believe, for all Christians in every time. Um, beginning in verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, uh, let us use them if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So we see these wonderful spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. And if you put these two passages together, you see some basic principles of of gifting. That God gives spiritual gifts which are a direct outworking of his life in us for the common good. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. He He gives different gifts to different believers in different proportions. That's very clear from this. Not all have the same level of gifting. Not all have the same number of gifts. But he distributes them as he, as he does wisely and perfectly to all of his people. And he does so that, so that we might use those gifts for the edification of the body itself. And so he sovereignly gives these gifts in different proportions of grace to use them in a way that is fruitful. And so our responsibility then is to pray and ask God, number one, what is the gift that he's given me? And number two... Lord, how can I use those gifts? Now, I believe that at this point in these men's lives, they were praying just that prayer. Lord, what do you want me to do? You made us prophets. You made us teachers. How do you want us to use these gifts? And I believe the Lord answers that prayer, and he makes it very clear for us how he wants us to serve and to use those gifts. So it's a question for you to think about as we look at this text. What are your spiritual gifts? What has he made you to do? How is he, how, what has he given you to edify the body? And how are you using them? So just hold that question as we look at this text. The second point that we see, not only that the Holy Spirit chooses men that he has gifted, he ordains men that he's gifted, and he ordains them according to his gifting, but then he sets those men apart through the church. Look at verse 2. We see the context in which the Holy Spirit appoints these men for their new calling while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. There's more to meets the eye in this verse. The word that's used for worshiping is a word that is, it's, it's the same word from which we get the word liturgy. And if you, you look at this word use in the Old Testament, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, it's a word that use, is used frequently to describe the work of the priesthood. I believe this passage is making a very subtle but real connection between the Old Testament priesthood and the modern-day ministry, particularly in these apostles. I'll get to more of that in just a moment. But again, what we're seeing here is that the context in which the Spirit appoints these men for their new calling is the context of worship in the gathered assembly. Now, it also tells us that they're fasting, which is a, a private practice, but they were, they were agreeing together to fast. Um, so what, what they're doing, they're doing together. And at this point, as they're praying and they're seeking the Lord, the Holy Spirit answers them. He comes down and gives them a word. And this is it. The Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, uh, this is remarkable now, number one, what we could take from this is that the Holy Spirit is not an it. Sometimes you hear Christians saying, uh, referring to the Holy Spirit as an it or as some thing, uh, and that's uh, horrible. Uh, that's a blasphemy, really. It's, it's not accurate, and it, and, it, and it should make you cringe. He is he. He is a person. He is a divine person. He's one of the three persons of the Godhead. 
So the Holy Spirit, this person speaks now. And this is a very rare thing to see in the scriptures, the Holy Spirit now speaking. Um, we don't see that very often. What we're seeing now is that this, the Holy Spirit, he is an agent of action in the church. He specifically here directs and guides the church in how they should appoint these men. And then he um, sends those men out, as we'll see in just a moment. By the way, generally speaking, we can attribute every good thing that happens in the world to the Spirit's activity. Just think about this. The Spirit, in His common grace activity, restrains sin, restrains madness, restrains foolishness. In the great kings of the earth, the Holy Spirit restrains them from their impulses, their base impulses, and gives them wisdom and knowledge and helps them to do righteously and do justice. When we see pagan kings and rulers doing good, we should praise the Lord because it's the Lord who who gives them that impulse and guides them in that way. The activity of the Holy Spirit is broad and great, but he delights specifically to work in the church. And if if we ask for his help, will he not give it? If he does it in in the world around us, would he not delight to guide us and direct us and give us wisdom when we need it? Give us power when we need it. Give us strength when we need it. Give us courage when we need it. So ask yourself, what do you need from God today? What do you need from God this week? Ask the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, to come and empower you, enlighten you with himself. And he will do that. So this, this, ans- this is an answer to their prayers. As they worship God, as they fast, as they seek the Lord's face, the Spirit comes down in power and says, I've got an answer for you. I've got a direction for you, church. And I've got some men picked out for this good work. Look what he says. Set apart for me. Barnabas and Saul. I believe what he's doing, he's speaking through one of these men. One of these men gets the the, the, the words, and it's a, a direct revelation of the Spirit through one of these prophetic um, ministers. But he says, set apart for me these two men, Barnabas and Saul. This is the same verb, set apart, used by Paul to describe his apostolic calling. Set apart for what? For the work, he says, to which I've called them. Now, if you look at Acts chapter 13 and 14, and I won't go there for time's sake, but if you look at Acts 13, in particular 14, do you know what? The text, what Luke calls both Saul, Paul, and Barnabas, he calls them both apostles. It's very, very clear. They're both called apostles there. Now, what we don't mean by that is that Barnabas is an apostle on the same level of Saul. I think that's pretty clear. But he he is called an apostle, and that's significant. Both of these men, an apostle is someone who's sent out. That's what that word means. They're sent out. They're sent for a particular mission. Uh, and, and so Barnabas, like Saul, is sent out uh, to minister to the Gentiles. Now remember, humanly speaking, the church had probably n- no um, hesitation in calling these men because, remember, Saul and Barnabas had been seen to be greatly useful already in ministering to the Gentiles. They had been working together in Damascus. And they had also been working together in Antioch. And they had been greatly fruitful in those places. And so now the church has been given a word by the Spirit. I have now been, I have picked out these men. I've gifted them. I've equipped them. I've previously used them. And I have a job for them now. I want you to appoint them, confirm them, and send them out. So this is an act of the Holy Spirit working through as he always does, the church. Christ does not act in these ways outside of the uh, recognition of the church. These men are ordained into the work of the church and through the work of the church. So, verse 3. Then, after fasting and praying, they, that is these fellow ministers, his fellow prophets and teachers, then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them. This is sort of the, the, the final sealing of this, uh, of the, the confirmation, the sealing of their ordination, that God has ordained them to this special task. 
Um, and this is the church's official confirmation of Christ's choosing of ministers. So what's happening is the same thing that we see in Acts chapter 6. If you want to turn there with me, just for a moment. We've seen this before. <clears throat> In Acts chapter 6, verse 6, it says that, that the men who are called as deacons, they set before the apostles, so that's the church, the congregation, chose them, set them before the apostles. The apostles recognized them as Christ's men, and then it says they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now, where does this come from, this laying on of hands? You ever seen this before in the Bible? Why does he call fellow ministers to lay hands on men who are called to these offices? Well, I want to show you that this is an old practice. There's an Old Testament uh, parallel to this. And I want you to go back and see this in Numbers chapter 8. I told you I'd return to this idea of the priesthood. Here it is. Numbers 8, verse 5. This is the appointing and setting apart of priests. Numbers 8, verse 5, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites from among the people of Israel and cleanse them. Thus you shall do to them and cleanse them. Sprinkle the water of purification upon them. Let them go with a razor all over their body and wash their clothes and cleanse themselves. Then let them take a bull from the herd and its grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil And you shall take another bull from the herd for a sin offering. And you shall bring the Levites before the tent of meeting and assemble the whole congregation of the people of Israel. When you bring the Levites before the Lord, the people of Israel shall lay their hands on the Levites. And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel, that they may do the service of the Lord. Then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of their bulls, and you shall offer for one, offer the one for a sin offering, and the other for a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. So you see here that there is already in place a sort of uh, uh, a parallel practice of laying hands on men that have been appointed for the priesthood. And I believe what we're seeing here is is a, a very subtle indication that ministers. Um, in, in some form or fashion, fulfill the functionality of priests in the, in, in the house of the Lord. It's not a one-to-one comparison, but there is a connection here. The point is this, very simple. The Holy Spirit chooses men for office in His church that He's already gifted. And then He makes sure that those men are confirmed through the, through the church itself. And that's the Holy Spirit's work, and that's the Holy Spirit's doing. And so we see that happening here. So next time you attend uh, an ordination service of a minister, understand that this is the way it has always been done. The Spirit gifts a man. He chooses a man. He makes that man known to the body. And then the body lays hands on that man through the elders. And they are appointed to that office. That's true of pastors. That's true of elders. That's true of deacons. Third thing we see in this text is that the Holy Spirit now sends those men to where he wants them to serve. Verse 4, it says, or sorry, the end of verse 3, it says that now the Holy Spirit does his third act, which is to send them off. Send them off. Verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit... They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Um, now remember what I said, that, that the word apostle means sent ones. But, but neither use of the word sent here is, is that root of uh, apostolos. It, there are two different verbs that are used here. The first one is to be set free. They've set them free to do what they're called to do. Um, I love this picture. Um, God made these men for a certain task. And now they have been set free to do it. picture that comes to my mind is a man who has a dog. And that dog is a guard dog. And that, that dog is good at one thing. And when that man lets him off his chain, he, he goes after it, what he's meant to do. These men are like men let off a chain. They, are, they have been made to do this thing. And they have been set out into the world to aggressively preach the gospel. 
And so he's set them free to do that. He's released them from their cage. Now they are free to go and preach the gospel wherever they may and wherever they will. And they do that. The second use of the verb is just the generic sending out, like a sending out of an ambassador to a foreign land. A king sends his ambassador to speak for him, and that's what these men do. That's what, and that is what a preacher is. He is a herald of the gospel, and he speaks not his own message, but he speaks the message of the king to wherever he is sent. And where did they go? What foreign land did they go to? Well, they got, uh, got on a horse or a donkey and rode 16 miles up the road to a place called Seleucia. Uh, it was a port city. They got on a boat. They paid a fare, and they, they sailed 60 miles across the water to an island, the island of Cyprus. <clears throat> Cyprus was where Barnabas was born, so there, there perhaps was some um, providence in the choosing of Cyprus. Um, going back to this island, they go to this uh, Mediterranean island where many ethnic groups lived at this time. The historians tell us that there were like a very broad ref, uh, reflection of the Mediterranean world. You had Egyptians, you had uh, Babylonians, you had Romans, you had Jews, you had all sorts of ethnic groups there. As a very big melting pot. Um, they exported wood and copper. The island was about 140 miles long, about 60 miles wide, so not a very large place. But they went and they began to preach, and they preached the length of that island. If you look in the text, they went from one end to the other. From a place called Salamis to a place called Paphos. And the first place they went was the synagogue. Now, if you wonder why would they go and preach in synagogues first, they always did this. And the reason was very practical because they knew in those synagogues there were many God-fearers. There were many Jews who were true believers. They just haven't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ yet. They had just not heard that the Messiah has come and the Messiah has revealed himself in the person of Christ. And so they went to these synagogues knowing that there were God-fearers just waiting to be liberated in the gospel and so they were very eager uh, audiences for the gospel, and they would be converted. And then these, these, new Jew, these new Jewish Christians would then make connections, help them make connections in their community, and they would give them deeper inroads into the community. So it was very practical for them to go to the synagogues first and preach the gospel there to these receptive people. Now, conversely, there were also many hardened Jews in these synagogues who hated that message. So what you saw were many of these Jews coming to Christ, but then a whole another group of them were uh, vehemently opposed to them. Uh, so you saw both things. But they go to Salamis, they preach the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they're doing their job. They're preaching the gospel. The free offer of the gospel to all who will hear. Sinners, come to God in Christ and you will be saved. Forsake your sins, forsake your own righteousness, and come and serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords and join his kingdom, which is a kingdom of, of, of freedom and peace and love and light. So here we, we see in this very short five verses is, a, is a, a snapshot of the ordination of Christ in ordaining men to office he gifts them, he chooses them, he sends them, he confirms them in his church, and then he sends them out where they go. This is the way he always works in his church. And so I want you to just think about this with me. By the way, I want you to look at this one last little line. And I don't want to make too much of it, but I also don't want to make too little of it. And they had John to assist them. Now this is young John Mark. He's their assistant. I believe he's also their apprentice. So what's he doing? He's learning. He's traveling with them. He's shadowing them. He's did what, he did what I did after seminary. Seminary can only, men who want to go to seminary, God bless you. Uh, but it can only prepare you so much for the work of the church. Internship is, is, is where you really put in practice what you learn in theory in the classroom. And in internship, you have hands-on experience. I believe this was... John Mark's internship. I believe this is where he began to apprentice and learn the ways of ministry. He was shadowing as I shadowed my pastor and so many other uh, men have shadowed their pastors before them. He was shadowing these apostles and watching what they did. This is very biblical. Paul said to the Corinthian church, be imitators of me as I am 
of Christ. This is the apostolic model. Leaders are, are called churches to follow them just as those leaders commit to following Christ so that both their teaching and their lives will model for God's people what we are to be. Watch what I do and copy that and improve upon it. So some will imitate their leaders by becoming leaders and succeeding them in those following generations. And that's part of what I want to preach now to you as a congregation. Because I want to speak specifically now, I want to speak to all of you about the use of your gifts, but I want to speak to you, especially you men and young men. Um, And how I wish there were more young men in this church to speak this message to, but this is a message that we need to hear. Christ wants to call some of you to serve in his church. He wants to call all of us to serve in his church, but some of you young men, he may be calling to leadership. And so I want to I put this thought in your mind, and I believe it's a biblical thought. It's a good desire. It is a worthy and admirable desire to lead in the church. It does not make you a better Christian. I want to be very clear. It does not make you more useful than your brethren. But it is a special calling, and it is a calling to men. And so whether it be a call to a deacon or a call to be a ruling elder or a call to be a pastor, a minister in the pulpit, God knows who he's chosen, and he will make it plain to you. He will give you gifts. He will enable you. He will equip you. He will make the church see this. But you want to desire it now. You should long for this now. You should pray for this now. God, have you, have you given me this calling? Do you have this for me? And if he has, then praise the Lord. If he hasn't, you can also praise the Lord. But if he has, you might be asking, well, how do I know if I'm called to an ordained office. This text gives you a clue. In fact, it gives you three clues. And you won't be surprised by them either. How do I know if I'm called to the ordained office? Well, here, let me begin by this. Christ calls men to the ordained office in the church whom he has already gifted. Here we see this passage clearly teaching us this. These men had already been given the gifts of ministry. Now, they had called them the, the gift, they called them the office of apostle which is no longer an office, by the way. Okay, that office has passed away. But the office of minister uh, takes up the mantle, as it were, of the office of apostle. Now, I want to say this. Closely related to gifting are his qualifications. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, we see a, a variety of qualifications for the office of elder and deacon. And in God's wise providence, not every man meets all of these qualifications. There you have a very clear uh, distinction of men who are, who are potentially called to office and who are potentially not, and who, or who are not. If you do not meet those qualifications, then it's very clear in God's providence he's not called you to that office. Sadly, in the church today, these qualifications are often neglected and not heeded much to the woe and sadness of the church. But again, in God's wise providence, not every man will be qualified. This is no knock against him. This is simply a providential alerting us of his plan for that man. The second is gifting. What are you gifted in? How are you gifted? What are your spiritual gifts? I asked this question earlier. How has God made you to serve in the body? All of us have gifts. But those who are called to ordained office need to have particular gifts, particularly the gift of teaching if you're an elder, and and proclamation or prophecy if you're a pastor. Do you like to teach? Do you find yourself in just ordinary conversation uh, instructing people, giving them knowledge? Do you love to share? Do you love to learn and do you love to share what you learn? Has God equipped you to make uh, sharing knowledge interesting and edifying, that people actually like to hear what you have to say about things? Um, now, if they don't, if you find people sort of, you know, cutting, you know, oh, i got to go here. Oh, you know, this guy's going on a rant. Um, uh, sorry, I've gotta, I'll see you later. If you see people turning away from your teaching all the time and being annoyed with it, then, then perhaps you're not gifted in that way. But, but if you find yourself uh, being used by God to help people come to greater understanding of God and His Word, then perhaps you've been given the gift of teaching. 
Do you love to persuade? Do you love to, 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 to get into conversations with people and to, and to exhort them? Do you love to try to, to persuade people and move their hearts to love the Lord? That might be an indication you have the gift of prophecy. Do you find yourself an insatiable, insatiable desire to know the Word of God and to teach others the Word of God and to reach people for the lost? You may have the gift of prophecy. It's not super mysterious. Do you love to serve? Do you love to just find things that need doing and do them? Do you look for the people around you that have needs and seek to meet them? You may be a deacon. God have, may, have, may, have, has, may have his hand upon you even now. I'm speaking now to you young men, but also to all of you men, and also to all of us. What has God given you to do? Has he given you the gift of mercy, of compassion? You have a tender heart for the weak and the lonely and the sad. That's a beautiful gift. Use it. You have a gift of hospitality. You love to make food and share food and, and welcome people into your home. It's a beautiful gift. It's necessary in the church. Use that gift. You have a gift of leadership. Has God made you an able administrator, organized, precise? That's a powerful gift. Very useful in the church. Whatever God has given you to do, I want to encourage you, do it. Use your gifts. I want to say this. Many Christians are frustrated and find their lives difficult because one of the reasons is they're not using their gifts. I found that to be true in my own experience when I was in seminary, of all places. I was learning to be a minister, but I wasn't preaching and I wasn't teaching regularly. I was exceedingly depressed and I didn't know why until I had opportunities to start preaching in the rescue shelter downtown at like 6 in the morning. Uh, in the churches around the area when I got to start teaching again in Sunday school for after a long time not teaching. It was like a breath of fresh air. It was like I was being set free from a cage. If you're not using your gifts, you might find yourself very frustrated and anxious. And I want to encourage you, where would God have you serve? Whom would God have you serve? Sometimes we need to get out of ourselves. We're so self-focused. It's by nature. God wants you to get out of yourself and, and work for him. Serve in his kingdom. And guess what you'll find is joy. Joy. So you don't need an office to serve. Don't hear me saying, please do not hear me saying that officers, ordained officers, are some uh, first-tier Christian, non-officers are second-tier. No, we have different gifts, and God appoints us to serve according to our gifts. Second. Christ calls men who are already faithful in Christian conduct and service. If you want to know who Christ has called and ordained to the church, you see men who have already been demonstrating faithfulness not only in their characters, but in their actual deeds. Remember, Paul and Barnabas were chosen from a group of men. Why did the Spirit choose them? Well, first of all, he had chosen men who had already shown themselves to be useful. A man who's called by Christ to the ordained office will already have a life that can be observed which is full of godly service, which is worthy of imitation. He'll already have done that. If you, if you have a man who's nominated for office who has not been um, living the life, then you have something deeply wrong. That is not the way it should work. A man who's called by Christ will be faithful in his character, but he will also be faithful in the most fundamental act of Christian service, which we see in this text, worship. He'll be a man who is devoted to worship. I want to broaden this, because what you see in this passage, these men were devoted to worshiping God both privately and publicly. The context in which the Spirit chose them was their worship and their fasting. These are men who are seeking God, so they're seeking God as individuals. A man who is... Uh, 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 faithful in private prayer, in private study of the scripture, a man who's faithful in, in family worship and leading his family to prayer and teaching his family the word of God and discipling his family, that is a man who is, is proving himself to be worthy of this calling. If a man is not doing these things, he's not living in these ways, then there you have a, a, a reason that he perhaps is not called. 
Now, he could probably grow in that area. But if he's not doing these things at all, then you have to wonder, is he really called? And the third is this. He's faithful in worshiping God corporately. This is a, a, a lamentable fact. But there are many men who are nominated for officers who are unfaithful, observably so, unfaithful in the public um, attendance and the public uh, worship of God. This is a grievous reality. Men who are delinquent in church attendance, who are not zealous and delighting in God's worship, who choose to stay home and enjoy themselves in front of their TV when the body of Christ are worshiping in the house of God. This is a grievous reality. What can you expect from that man if he's going to be a leader? Not good things. What you can expect is that the weak and immature in the church will imitate him in his selfishness and his sin. And this has borne itself out countless times. And so if a man is already faithful in his character and in his practice, in his personal worship, in his family worship, in his corporate worship, then you see a man who is perhaps called to office in the church if he is, again, gifted and qualified in other ways. The church of Jesus Christ desperately needs reformation in this area, in the area of qualifications. We have these debates now as to whether or not we should ordain men who openly identify themselves as homosexuals, brothers and sisters. Is this not a grievous reality? We need to go back to the basics. Are we actually taking seriously the qualifications that are already in the scriptures? Is he a faithful man in his conduct, in his practice, in his family? We should keep the bar high where Jesus sets it. Nominate and call and ordain only men who are qualified and gifted and are faithful and whose lives are worthy of imitation. Young men, I want you to aspire. God calls you to aspire to that kind of life. Whether or not he calls you to the office, that's the kind of life that honors Christ. Devote yourself to him. Devote yourself to private and public worship and to serving him as a witness. And thirdly, brothers and sisters, Christ calls men who are recognized and confirmed by the church. The Holy Spirit, if you are called to, to office, the Holy Spirit will make it plain to the people around you. You will be not only one who desires inwardly, there is, a, there is an element of an internal call, which, which is a desire for this office, a desire to serve the Lord um, in leadership position, but it is confirmed by the external. You cannot have an internal call without an external call. If you're truly called of Jesus, you'll have both. Now, the internal call, interestingly, uh, comes and goes. Many times I've doubted my own call. But what, one thing that encourages a man is the external call. When the church says, no, we know that you see yourself as a complete failure. We know you see yourself as inadequate and terribly pitiful in your gifting but we see gifts in you we see fruit in you we see usefulness in you keep going that will encourage your soul when you feel down on monday morning or when you feel down as a deacon or you feel down as an elder whatever you're called god gives us the external call and by the way we should encourage one another when we see god's people using their gifts say thank you to them encourage them uh, give praise where praise is due and, 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 and remind them that they are useful in the body. Um, that's something I, I need to do better at myself. Um, but we need to recognize how God is using each other in our, in our midst and, and, and give affirmation in that way. So brothers and sisters, the principle is that Jesus Christ works through his church and the church confirms those men who Jesus chooses. The church doesn't choose the men. Jesus chose, chooses the man, but the church confirms. And then when you have that wonderful privilege of being the hands laid on you, that is Christ through his body setting you off for the work that you've been given. And that's a wonderful moment. Brothers and sisters, it is a call. It is a privilege, but it's also a call to deny ourselves. Leadership is service. It's not the world's vision of, of leadership. It's a dying to yourself. It's, it's something we're all called to do. But leaders are to be preeminent in self-denial. 
So that we seek the Lord Jesus Christ. We imitate him first. He's the one who taught us how to die to ourselves. He's the one who did it perfectly. He denied himself so that we might live, so that we as fathers, we as elders, we as uh, deacons, we as fellow brothers and sisters may deny ourselves to lift one another up, to, as it were, give life. Christ gives life by dying to himself. Therefore, we now live in his shadow and follow in his ways. Officers are like military officers in that they are on the front lines of spiritual battles. They take the first hits, and they are also in the trenches. It is no light thing to be a leader because you'll be a target, number one target. If the enemy can take you out, then he can take out many with you. It is important that we are all following Jesus on that straight path that he has set for us. I want you to take note of the words that Paul uses at the end of this passage. He said that this Satan is striving to, to stray God's people from the straight paths of the Lord. It is important that leaders, we be on that path ourselves first, walking in straight ways, orthodox ways, and straight practices. And this is only true, this only is true of us by God's grace. We are men who fail. We are men who sin. All of us sin. All of us fail. This is why we need the gospel every single day. This is why we need Jesus Christ to empower us continually by his word and spirit. Brothers and sisters, there's much more here, but we'll pause there and, and, and just simply ask, how's God gifted you? Young men, some of you may be called to leadership one day. Let this passage encourage you and help you determine if indeed you are one of his men. And may we all use our gifts for the good of the church. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this passage of scripture and thank you for the gift of leaders. Lord, we know that you are our ultimate head and leader. You are the one who guides and directs everything we do. We have no authority and no power outside of you. So we look to you, Lord, that we might imitate your ways, both as officers and non-officers. But we ask God in heaven that you would please help us to determine your will for us and how it is that we might serve in your body. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to use our gifts more fruitfully, more faithfully, and more zealously. And we pray that you would raise up officers in this church, raise up elders and deacons that would serve us into the next generation. And we pray, Lord, you would even raise up some of these young men to be pastors and elders and deacons and that in your own time. Thank you, Father, for your calling on us, first and foremost, as our calling as a disciple. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.